This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week we are in conversation with John Picton. Now, John is a lecturer in the law department at the University of Liverpool and part of their Centre on Charity Law and Policy, as you'll hear. Um, and I've known John for a while, um, and we've been uh, attempting to record a podcast conversation for for quite a while, as you'll hear, and sort of uh, failing to do so, but thankfully we finally got around to it. Um, we had a great conversation sort of about um, charity law, and particularly around the various different ways in which the question of taking money uh, back that has passed the charitable threshold or kind of been uh, been donated uh, and towards charitable purposes, uh, how that happens and what are some of the issues uh, that it can raise. Um, so we started off just by talking a bit about what charity law actually is and what some of the sort of key principles um, that one needs to understand to, to kind of understand the study of charity law is, particularly around uh, the idea of public benefit here in the UK. Uh, and then we went on to talk about the various different ways, uh, as I say, in which money that has been kind of earmarked for charitable purposes might uh, be sort of returned or why people might want to return it. So the first one that we, we talked through was the situation in which uh, a fund or a charity uh, exists where it has been set up historically at one point in time with a particular set of purposes and for various reasons it is those purposes no longer seem relevant or cannot be discharged. So we've talked about this before on the, the podcast where you have the kind of dead hand of the donor. And we talked about what some of the issues are with allowing there to be endowed institutions in perpetuity, what the law says about that, what the practical process is for freeing up some of those assets uh, as and when people want to do that. Um, and also kind of related it to things like what some of the legal issues are around uh, people challenging challenging the wills or, or kind of testamentary gifts of relatively recently deceased donors and how these sort of relate to some of the questions around the CPRE doctrine. We then went on to talk about the situation in which an existing charity or, or organisation whose purposes uh, still remain relevant might want to either turn down or return a donation so here we came on to the issues and questions around sort of tainted donations that have been brought into the spotlight by uh, news stories around things like the Sacklers and Jeffrey Epstein and we've talked about it previously on the podcast uh, and John and I talked about you know what it actually meant in practice for an organization to be able to turn down um, a donation or to return it how those two different scenarios differed and what the legal implications were how the the kind of legal requirements on trustees uh, could be balanced against some of these decisions uh, and and the question of whether it's better for organizations to turn back the money to avoid the risk of reputational damage or whether it's better to take bad money and turn it to good purposes uh, and then thirdly we went on to talk about the situation in which a, a government might want to to nationalize charitable assets which 
came to the fore um, in the autumn uh, of 2019 here in the UK because there was a proposal made by the Labour Party at their political conference um, to potentially nationalise the uh, charitable assets of endowed independent schools and this caused a big sort of foray on social media and John and I were both sort of involved in conversations about it. So we talked about kind of you know, what the legal implications of this were, whether it's feasible in practice and what some of the sort of um, potential theoretical issues it throws up might be. And then we closed just by talking a bit about, you know, John's experience of the relationship between academia and practice around philanthropy and charity and kind of what could potentially be done to, to strengthen some of those bonds. So without further ado, let's go into the conversation. I will be back at the end of the programme just to do a little bit of housekeeping and tidying up. So uh, see you in a bit. Okay, great. So I'm here with John Picton. Hi, John. Hi, Rodri. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. And Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, yes. (laughs) And John, I'll get you to introduce yourself properly in a moment, but just to to give a brief uh, outline of who you are. You are a lecturer in the law department at the University of Liverpool. That's right. That's right. Uh, Lecturer um, at the Charity Law and Policy Unit. There's a little group of us which research uh, charity law issues um four or five of us actually and that's been growing over the years um you're also based in liverpool aren't you so i am yes yeah yeah, we have i think done that that odd thing obviously we have met each other but uh, but first without realizing that we were both geographically in the same place and could actually (laughs) (laughs) just meet up for coffee um and yeah i should should say we've kind of um i've been to um at least one event that you've hosted which was a very interesting one which i think i might have mentioned on the podcast last year um and you know we've also kind of chatted quite a lot about the sorts of things that we're going to be chatting about on the podcast today so hopefully this won't uh, sound too stale to everybody um but maybe you could just um sort of give a, a bit of background up front about what your particular research interests are or have been to give people an idea of you know the sort of thing that the the academic study of charity law actually involves so actually it's not a very large area of uh, academic research which I think is both um, surprising and and a shame I think it's certainly case for a lot more people to uh, come on board and, and research this area um so it's not as if I've got any competitors doing exactly the, the same stuff as me, if you know what I mean. So I'm I'm interested in um, what's technically called the charitable see prey doctrine, uh, which means changing the, the purposes of an organisation, altering uh, what an organisation does. Um, and that's actually a historic doctrine, which is which is how I got interested in it, because I was interested in the uh, the history of the cases, which really do go back a very long time. They go back to about uh, 1600. Uh, but over time, I've, I've moved away from that historic focus, although my heart's still there. I'm interested, along with my colleagues at the unit, in uh, pretty much every uh, legal issue which which affects the sector. Uh, so this is beyond the sort of historic base of trust law, very rich people giving money to certain purposes, uh, to what's now a sort of modern body of rules uh, affecting organisations. So uh, organisations uh, that struggle to register, organisations that want to um, get involved in politics. These are tricky legal issues. Uh, organisations uh, that are worried about attaching employment rights to their volunteers or all this sort of thing that's what charity law is uh, sometimes you hear it, people say the law as it applies to charities rather than a kind of specific of body of law which is just charities 
Okay, cool. And yeah, I mean, maybe a, a useful thing before we, we go into the sort of main bulk of what what we wanted to talk about today is just to, to give people a sense of what maybe some of the the kind of key principles or sort of uh, theoretical frameworks within you know, charity law or law as it applies to charity are. And I'm thinking of things there in the UK like the idea of uh, public benefit, or the 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 you know the idea that will be relevant to what we're going to go on and talk about. Um, that there's a sort of charitable threshold beyond you know an imaginary threshold, obviously beyond which money can pass, and then certain kind of legal restrictions apply. Are there, are there any you know perhaps you could say a bit about those and any other kind of key concepts that you think are useful? Yes, well, I think the first thing to say with charity law is everything that it touches is is an enormous can of worms. So in 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 principle, it's quite simple. There are three things uh, that you need to establish a validly charitable organisation. One is it has to be for a recognised charitable purpose. Now, historically, this was just case law. It's judges deciding on an ad hoc basis uh, what various charitable purposes are that are valid. So obviously the laws move a long way away from a core charitable idea of just poverty being the only, uh, the relief of poverty being the only charitable purpose. Um, since 2006, it's been a big statutory list, and it is a long list of different purposes, uh, which includes uh, things uh, like the environment, um, the fire services, a very broad range of different things. Um, so that's been clarifying. So, th- so that, I suppose, is, is much tidier than it was historically. Um, the second thing, though, is not only do organisations have to be for a valid charitable purpose, so something in your statutory list, but they also have to be for the public benefit. Um, so uh, a nice sort of example of a, a purpose which wouldn't be for the public benefit, which exists in the case law, uh, kind of joked by judges, is a school for pickpockets. So you've got educational purpose, but the, being for pickpockets, it wouldn't be for the public benefit. At the but that's a nice, clear example. The trouble is, of course, um, that public benefit is just a nice, normal, common sense top um, wording or common sense meaning. The minute you try and give that a precise legal definition and you, you start telling organisations that they are or they're not for the public benefit, it becomes really, really, really complicated. Uh, so that's the kind of worms, uh, whether or not uh, any given organisation is uh, for the public benefit. And and so I assume that a lot of the kind of practical, what practical charity law that that's that is that ends up at establishing new case law is is largely centred around those arguments about whether or not public benefit or the requirement for public benefit has been met in certain cases, and and do those then sort of had the boundaries of that expanded at all, or are they continually changing, or or is there? some sense that now that there's been set down in in law a kind of list of things that count as as charitable the the that's relatively kind of monolithic so this is actually very interesting before 2006 the law essentially evolved so there were different standards of public benefit for different sorts of organizations so a religious organization would not have to show in any meaningful sense there's a strong presumption in favor of its public benefit and you can see how that works for a religious organization how do you make a religious organization prove public benefit can of worms very 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 difficult uh, the same for relief of poverty very low threshold test 
And then uh, the, the widespread of charities, just community organisations, they were made to work much harder to prove that they had public benefit. 2006, the Charities Act in 2006, has actually messed that up. It's made it much more complicated uh, than it was because it, it tried to establish a uniform standard of public benefit across all organisations. And then, uh, and I think it's fair to say that it wasn't a very good piece of legislation because that then triggered a, a case that you might know, the Independent Schools case, the ISC and Charity Commission, uh, where there was a uh, case brought to the Charity Tribunal uh, precisely on the issue of whether or not independent schools um, uh, can uh, charge fees and still be for the public benefit. Uh, so as you can imagine, that's an absolute uh, kind of one. It's a very difficult legal issue. Yeah, absolutely. And and something that I think will come up again uh, later on in the conversation related to, to sort of one of the ways in, in which we're going to talk about um, charitable, uh, charitable assets being um, reclaimed. Um, which maybe maybe at this is the point uh, at which to sort of move on to that because the main thing that we the, that we'd kind of thought about talking about given your area of expertise was the the various different ways in which assets that have kind of been handed over to charity and passed that imaginary threshold might um, be reclaimed or why somebody might want to um, and I think there there were a couple of different things that we that we wanted to talk about one um, the to cover first is kind of the situation in which a charitable organisation or a fund no longer has uh, a purpose that can be meaningfully discharged. So the sort of idea that, you know, you have these kind of zombie trusts or zombie charities out there that can literally no longer kind of meet the requirements of, of uh, their initial sort of founding purposes and what you do in that circumstance. The, the second one being where a charity still exists, you know, and it's perfectly uh, kind of able to continue operating but for some reason it wants to push money back across the charitable threshold itself and and this is where we'll i think come on to the issue of things like tainted donations and then the last one which is has happened historically but is is sort of more theoretical i guess but comes up in political discussion is uh suggestions that sometimes arise that the state might want to kind of forcibly nationalize uh charitable resources of one sort or another uh, and what kind of issues that throws up um so maybe we could take first that that question around um the the situation in which you kind of have challenges around the dead hand of the donor and and institutions that have been set up for one purpose a long time ago uh existing uh, in a kind of modern context and no longer able to discharge that and what challenges that raises and what can be done about it i think this is is, is such an interesting area so one of the things that donors might want to do is precisely lock up a particular vision uh, for perpetuity and charity law allows that because charitable trusts in contrast with uh, private trusts are perpetual they, they last forever and of course forever is, is a very very long time so that might be part of the motivation of the donor in establishing a a charity is precisely to uh, lock up a way of seeing the world. And the problem is, of course, that over time, that way of seeing the world might become less and less useful. And so you've got this constant tension in charity law between essentially encouraging donors to part with their money by saying, here's, here's this legal form which allows you to do precisely what you want. And not only that, as long as it fits the definition of charity, but not only that, but last 
into the future uh, against, the, of course, need that charitable organisations must be useful. Now, historically, before 1960, it was very, 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 very difficult to change the purposes of a charity to update it. So the, the donor's intention would be very closely stuck to, unless it's been some sort of collapse, unless it become absolutely impossible for the organisation to run. So a really nice example of this is uh, Craven uh, and Attorney General uh, from 1856, where there, there was a, a trust for the looking after plague victims and uh, establishing a, uh, yes, precisely, establishing a, a graveyard for plague victims as well. Uh, and 150 years after the last plague, uh, a court said that it, it was not possible to reform that trust because there might possibly, it's not unimaginable, this is in 1856, it's not unimaginable that there would be another plague. And so the law would lock in uh, old purposes, old charitable visions and just maintain them in aspect forever. After 1960, it's become much easier. And the Charity Commission was essentially empowered, essentially, to take into account uh, the effectiveness of the organisation. They have to balance the donor's intention, essentially, against effectiveness, but it's become much, much easier. And quite an interesting historical thing, actually, is that in that period from 1960, I don't know, to the late 20th century, uh, actually a very large number of charities were reformed. And you can see this in the Charity Commission reports at the time. Uh, this was actually a, quite a large bulk of the Charity Commission's work. I don't think it is today anymore. I think the Charity Commission has other priorities, is doing other things. It's possibly the case that a lot of charities have just straightforwardly been reformed and that work isn't there to do anymore. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think this whole area raises some some really kind of fascinating questions. I think thinking about... Um, the 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 question of kind of balancing respecting uh the wishes of of donors and that being kind of enshrined in law versus the the requirement to meet the needs of today you know that's where i think you see all the kind of historical criticism from uh, everybody from john stuart mill through to people over in the, the states now like ray madoff you know very vocally criticizing this kind of phenomenon of the dead hand of the donor uh, i think kind of you can see how if you if you uh, present examples of that that are particularly extreme or silly where obviously the the kind of um, the purposes for which an organization was set up are so out of date or so narrow that it obviously it's going to to look totally kind of um, uh, impossible to to fulfill them in a modern context in a way anybody with any common sense would say well this is this is ludicrous why don't we just open these things up and kind of free up the assets and put them to good use now but but where it's where it seems to me you, you know you, you've got to be more careful and where there's a kind of danger of a slippery slope is when you look at some of the examples where clearly there is a case to be made that uh that you know those assets are not being used as effectively now as they could be or potentially kind of uh being held up from being put to, to good uses now but equally, you can't outright say that the purposes for which they were set up are totally ridiculous. So I think it, you know it's one of those things where if you look in that grey area, all of a sudden you realise that some of these judgments are remarkably complex. 
Yes, absolutely. So uh, Lord Beveridge, actually, after the uh, Second World War, has a, did a report and he, he has in it a, a so-called what he calls a chamber of horrors. And it's precisely as you say, he's playing that trick, a, a list of absolutely uh, ludicrous, sort of silly examples of uh, out-of-date trust. He's, of course, making the legal point that the law shouldn't allow that. But as, as, as you rightly say, um, there are plenty of grey areas which, which are not absurd or amusing. So uh, for, I think quite an interesting example is uh, almshouses, which might own a very valuable piece of land, and they might have uh, uh, inappropriate accommodation for uh, their clients. Uh, and it's sort of natural for them to want to to sell that land, particularly if it's in the city centre. But of course, this will be architecturally, very often architecturally significant. It, it might be the donor's uh, very long-standing plan to have arms houses in a very particular area. And there you get a much finer, in that kind of example, you get a much finer debate, don't you? You get a much more closely balanced scale as whether or not an arms house should be able to sell its uh, property and set up out of town with providing better accommodation and the such like yeah absolutely and and in that that gray area where you know it's it's not as clear-cut either as you know i think the most clear-cut to me is an example where you have an existing donor's wishes and actually that then sort of runs foul of changes subsequently in the law so i know there are cases in the u.s for instance where uh, donors set up funds that had kind of segregationist requirements on them and obviously that you know putting those uh, into effect nowadays runs up uh, against kind of equalities and civil rights law and, and that seems to me relatively kind of straightforward or I'm sure it's more complicated in practice but but in that that kind of grey area where there isn't that that sort of clear legal reason to make the decision one way or another what is the actual practical process if if you know um well, I don't know who'd be looking at it, the, the charity commission or somebody else who wants to make a claim on money that they feel has been kind of uh, unfairly or unjustly tied up by the wishes of a long dead donor and wants to try and access it or do some good with it. What in practical terms do they actually do? So, so it works like this. It would actually be the trustees and that, that would make a move towards the charity commission to to change the purposes of, uh, of the trust and so release the funds so they can be spent more effectively. Trustees are actually under a duty to do that. So they have to contact the Charity Commission. And then the Charity Commission then essentially is a gatekeeper and it will uh, say yes or no and it will apply statutory criteria, as I say, balancing effectiveness against the wishes of the donor. Note that this system doesn't really compel change. It's actually quite a conservative system because it all relies on the trustees actually to have the thought, to have the meeting, to realise uh, that, that a change is necessary and then uh, approach the commission. So, so it's, it's certainly not interventionist. It's, it's, it's it, the, 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 the motor, the motivation has to be with the trustees, really. And do you think, I mean, one of the things that you see put forward in arguments, um, uh, you know, against uh, endowments in perpetuity, it, well, some people just think they should be done away with altogether. But I think a middle ground is often seen to be that there should be m many more sort of um, established uh, checkpoints that make sure that the sort of purposes are constantly under review so that you don't fall into the, the trap uh, further down the line of, of finding that you've suddenly got these purposes that are 
very uh, you know kind of very long way out of date so are you saying that at the moment that kind of relies on the initiative of trustees or is there any sense in which they they are kind of there's also a bit of um stick as well as carrot that kind of demands that that trustees of some of those institutions keep their purposes under constant review and where there seems to be a danger of them slipping towards being obsolescent they they do something about it before it it gets too problematic yes so so they are under this duty to keep it under review to keep their purposes under review in actual fact a circumstance where they would be in breach of duty for allowing their charity to become entirely obsolescent would be really quite extreme. And I can't think of any example. So the only circumstances where trustees could possibly find themselves in trouble would be uh, in a really clear cut uh, example of uh, a perhaps extreme waste. So imagine a, a charity which distributes uh, coal in a, in a local neighbourhood you can see how that would have become entirely obsolescent or that would have been very useful in the past. That uh, Trustees that were just doing that still uh, would possibly find themselves in trouble, but that would be uh, an extreme case. If the charity is just idiosyncratic, uh, just not very useful way of spending the money, trustees are never going to get in trouble for not approaching the commission. Um, and some, something else I wanted to just just come on to because I think it, it links to this before we go on to to talk about some uh, some of the other kind of scenarios that, that we outlined up front. Um, you know, how does this this question around what you do with uh, charitable assets that have sort of long past the charitable threshold, um, but obviously kind of relate to the wishes of, of donors who've dead? How does this relate to some of the the kind of cases that we see uh, cropping up quite regularly around donors who've only recently been deceased, and there are challenges to to the wishes made in their wills? Because there there seem to have been quite a few cases over the last few years where living heirs have, you know, not long after the point of death, probably going through probate or or whatever, have challenged bequests or charitable gifts made in the will and successfully done so. Um, are there kind of related issues in either case? So they are related. So you could imagine a scenario where a donor uh, leaves a gift by will, a testamentary donor leaves a gift by will, and that's so wasteful or so bizarre that it's changed immediately after his or her death. Uh, That's really, really rare. What tends to happen, what tends to generate these cases is there's just something wrong with the gift. Um, And this this has been going on for a very long time. So a really uh, nice example, a really interesting historic example um, is a case from 1779 actually called Mobridge and Thackwell and in that case there's a a very grand donor called Anne Cam and she was immensely wealthy and she died she left £5,000 in legacies uh, and then she left the rest uh, to someone called uh, James Vaston who was a clergyman and she said in her will that James Vaston should distribute the funds as he thinks fit, uh, recommending poor, poor clergymen uh, with large families and good character. So he was supposed to give out the, the money as he thinks fit uh, to poor clergymen with large families and good character. And um, unfortunately, James Vaston died before Anne Cam. So uh, she dies, the will's read, James Vaston doesn't exist. Um, and so you've got a situation where you've got money left 
uh, to a purpose which just cannot be carried out because James Faston doesn't exist. And the reason this case is um, interesting legally is because it, it sets and clarifies a lot of principle for a scenario that actually crops up again and again uh, today. Uh, it, it's, it's not normally to a private person, but it's actually very common for people to, well, or reasonably common for people to leave gifts to organisations, not people like James Faston, but organisations which no longer exist. So, for example, some sort of care home which is closed down. And then when the will is read, it turns out that that care home no longer exists. And it's that issue uh, which just keeps coming up over and over again and has done for centuries, just keeps coming up uh, in the court. And one of the sort of interesting things here is that we just don't know why this issue keeps coming to court, why people don't just change their wills. Uh, we can only imagine it's because people are very old and unaware, perhaps they're in a care home, they're just unaware that an organisation is closed down. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess, the, you know, given the number of people who entirely fail to make a will and die intestate, the fact that people make a will and then forget about what they've put yeah. on it is probably not that surprising. Um, in, in those circumstances where somebody dies and there is a specific institution, uh, say, named that no longer exists, what, what then is the default established in law? Is it for the money, for the, the gift then cannot be discharged, so the money just goes to, to the, the next of kin? Or is there any sort of element of, of CPRE or something similar there where they somebody attempts to seek the closest possible you know, organisation or institution that could discharge the donor's will? Well, in my view, the, the law is, is, is a mess here because, I mean, the fact that there has been cases coming to court for centuries, I think, shows it's a problem. So the problem is that it's an open question very often what will happen. And this generates, it incentivizes people to go to court. And so you'll have the next of kin of the donor saying that the money should go to them. Or you'll, and you'll have charities which serve similar purposes to the ones that closed down also saying that the money should go to them. And, and that would be called CPRE in law. That's obviously a different meaning of, of CPRE from the, the type we've been talking about. And so every time this happens, it sort of generates a court case with charities on one hand and the next of kin on the other. And, uh, the, and this can be uh, very, very expensive where it does go to court. We're talking over £100,000 out of what might be quite an ordinary estate. If you think of someone leaving a house for £300,000 and then £100,000 being taken out of that in a court case, it's very wasteful. Yeah, and, and I think this is a huge issue for, for charities that... Um are sort of expecting legacy gifts or no they have i think where they where they do have to fight them because it's um it's sort of understandable that that they need to to kind of do their best to ensure the income that they thought was coming their way does and and you know maybe because they know that respects the donor's wishes but being seen to kind of go to court and spend large amounts of money fighting you know messy battles with with uh, living heirs is is never really reputationally a great look so um, you know, it's it's not a, a brilliant situation always round. I wouldn't have thought. Um, maybe at this point we could kind of uh, just move move on slightly to the to the sort of second um, thing that we outlined up front, thinking about why there might be situations in which an existing organisation um, that either 
has already received a donation or or potentially is about to receive a donation from a donor might want to either return it or say no to it. And I, I imagine the two circumstances are quite different in terms of the legal implications. Um, but maybe we, you could start by just um, outlining quickly kind of why it is that this situation sometimes, sometimes occurs and why there's this idea that some donations can be perceived as tainted. Well, this has really come to the front of the headlines recently, hasn't it? It's quite surprising. This issue has boomed out of nowhere. And so if you if you think about it, it's, it's constantly in the news, actually. Uh, we have the, the, the Sacklers, of course, uh, and their uh, philanthropic donations to a wide range of organisations all, all across the world. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, donations uh, similar, uh, donations uh, to MIT in particular uh, were in the news um, we have uh, the President's Club scandal, if you remember that, where it was uh, misogynistic uh, fundraising and the President's Club, which was itself a charity, was giving funds to Great Ormond Street and then Great Ormond Street uh, essentially found itself embarrassed by that uh, gift. Uh, and so this is it, it has been constantly in the news. And I suspect once you get a pattern of stories like this, it, it's just not going to go away. The law, uh, you won't be surprised to hear, is complex on the point. The, the, the first thing is, um, as you say, that there are two different circumstances. There's one where uh, money is coming to a charity or, or someone's trying to give money to a charity and they want to refuse it. And then the second circumstance is where they've already got the money and they're embarrassed that they've got it because it's somehow uh, become toxic. The, the, the first circumstance uh, where money is, you're, you're a charity and money's coming your way and you don't want it, you're, you're, you're obviously in, in a much stronger position than the second one. Um, so it might be surprising that it, it's not necessarily the case that you can automatically just say no to a gift as, as a trustee board. The test is always, are you acting in the best interest of the charity? And so if someone's offering you a large amount of money, you have to make a case, or, or, or even a smaller amount of money, you have to make a case that your decision to refuse a gift is in the best interests of the charity. And you can see how that can be really very, very difficult. Because what are you doing? Are you weighing up reputation here against, of course, the good that you can do with the money? But th there are examples in the case law. It does seem to be the case that organisations can uh, refuse gifts. So an example is Relicet uh, from 1968, uh, a very striking case where a, a woman left money to the Royal College of Surgeons uh, to establish a chair, um, a, a, a professor, and she said that the holder of the chair could not be Jewish or Roman Catholic, and the Royal College of Surgeons refused that gift and actually got the purposes changed. They got uh, the uh, uh, discriminatory exclusion removed. Uh, so the law does seem to allow that. It does seem to allow uh, refusals. Uh, the right to give back, though, is, is a much more complicated matter. Yeah, and it strikes me in, in that first case, I mean, we'll go on to the, the kind of right to, to give money back in a moment. But in terms of that, that first situation where a charity hasn't yet received the gift, but might want to, to do so, as you say, actually, kind of the grounds on which you can justify that case that you are fulfilling your duty as a trustee are are quite difficult because if you're making a case that it's in the best interest of the charities uh, you know that clearly that very difficult to make that on sort of financial grounds because you're actively turning down money so it has to be balancing p potential reputational risk against it and that is 
you know difficult to to quantify is uh, is there also a, a challenge that the the line between people making very heavily sort of values-based decisions or ethical decisions on some of these issues it's difficult for them to differentiate their own personal views from their views insofar as their trustees because it strikes me on on some of the really interesting gray area here increasingly around things like you know accepting money from individuals or organizations for instance that are linked to the fossil fuel industry you know and for an individual trustee they might have very strong views on that and want to turn that money down but to make the case in terms of their duty as a trustee for an organization say that doesn't have an environmental purpose is significantly more complicated so this is this is an organization which is being offered money uh, to carry out a purpose that they don't approve of. Is, is that what you mean? Well, oh, I think in, in the case I'm thinking of, say it is it, it, not even the purpose, to say that the, the source of, of the donation is a, a company mm, or an individual yeah. who has made that money through uh, you know, the worst possible part of the fossil fuel industry. And you have an individual trustee or a group of trustees within an organisation that isn't itself uh, uh, environmental or doesn't have environmental purposes wanting to turn that donation down because they believe that you know money from should from that kind of source should not be acceptable or is kind of sufficiently ethically dubious but actually the case to be made there given that the organization in this theoretical example doesn't have straightforward environmental um, purposes seems to me quite a complicated one where if it's not just about the individual trustees' beliefs, but about their beliefs about what's in the best interest of, of the charity, constructing that, that case, whilst not impossible, is is quite complex. Absolutely. And there isn't much or any law on this. So trustees are really quite left in the, the dark. Uh, we might eventually get a case. No trustee wants to be involved in that case. And that case would then clarify the situation. But this, this is a really very complicated uh, ethically murky uh, situation. So you have a, a, a group of trustees that, for example, just don't want to receive money from uh, a fossil fuel uh, company. Can they just say no? Who, who knows? I, I suspect not. I mean, they, they, perhaps they can take into account their reputational damage from receiving money from a, a fossil fuel company. They can... Uh, ask questions about whether or not the ethics of that company are aligned with their own charitable mission but as you say this this is very it's almost an impossible dilemma for a trustee board because they're turning down money which they can use to pursue their purposes and do good with and so it's a very finely balanced ethical question yeah and i think your your point there about the the taking the money and and putting it to good purposes is is that's really interesting because in this question of tainted donations certainly when you look historically there kind of there are broadly two very different schools of thought about what you know charity or institution should do and there is the school of thought that any uh any version of taking the money implies condoning uh the donor or their activities to some extent and brings reputational risk for the charity therefore the only thing to do is to keep your hands entirely clear and give the money back even if that's difficult in practice but then there are people who will argue equally strongly that the responsibility of the charity is is you know not only to sort of accept the money but very much to kind of take as much of it as they can and take it away from the source of the taint and put it towards 
good purposes um but then i think there are the you know all those really interesting questions about whether that is the role of charities to kind of take money and and sort of wash it clean of impurities and and sort of how that can actually be done uh in practice um, that's that's right and it, it, i think it's important to also just keep in mind that this issue now seems to be live in a way that it wasn't so mit really suffered from uh jeffrey epstein's gift uh, organizations that receive funds from the sacklers have really suffered reputationally from that so that's new isn't it i don't think that existed in the past and that's just a, another layer of pressure really on on trustees I wonder in I think it is a new layer of pressure, but I wonder if in some ways it will make the job for those who do want to argue uh, in favor of turning down donations easier because actually the the there is a growing body of evidence in favor of arguments I think that there is sufficient there has been a sufficient shift in public opinion or a sufficient weight of uh supporter demand to turn down certain forms of money that actually you know those sort of uh, arguments about reputational risk that in the past might have been largely theoretical now I think look a bit more evidence-based perhaps I, I think that's right I think that's right it's certainly a something that you can look back to case studies it's certainly a story now one thing that I think is important here though is that charities are not necessarily geared up towards refusing gifts it, you can see how that might not be in an institutional culture of uh, any organisation which has to fundraise. So the, the job of a fundraiser is essentially to get money and then to uh, and then for trustees to be telling the fundraisers, uh, telling the fundraisers in their organisation that they need to take a different tack and start uh, uh, sort of screening the money as it comes in. That can be a really big institutional shift for an organisation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, putting that, that requirement on fundraisers on the front line, as you say, is a sort of huge, huge ask, mm. actually, yeah. um, particularly if that's not sort of legally where that the, the responsibility or or the kind of power to make those decisions uh, lies. I think if you're having to turn very complicated ethical considerations into sort of practical guidance for people whose job is to go out and try and raise money that that does strike me as extremely difficult although i know it's something that lots of people in the fundraising world are thinking about um one thing just just uh, on further on this question i'm just really interested in is we've talked a bit about the idea of um organizations either that have already received the money or have kind of been presented with the opportunity deciding that they should hold on to it because actually that's the best course of action and that you know they can do some good with money that was previously tainted in some way one of the interesting questions i've heard raised about this is in in that circumstance is it enough for a charity to just carry on with what it is doing even if that's not sort of related to the way in which the money was bad because you know they're just doing generalized good or if if this is going to be a justifiable justifiable situation, does the does the good done with the money somehow have to address the ill done with the way in which it was made? So is there some sort of demand that it kind of makes restitution or reparation for the damage? Sure. So so with the Sacklers in particular, of course, the, the Sacklers uh, owned Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma uh, manufactured a, a drug called OxyContin which uh, released 
uh, painkillers into the bloodstream over a long period. Uh, because it was uh, opiate-based, a lot of people came addicted. This is all proven in court. Uh, the, 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 the company knew about this, and so they're liable uh, for the addiction on a large scale. And one of the things that people say about that is that the way that organisations that receive money from the Sacklers can put things right is by targeting their money towards uh, opiate addiction. And I think that that makes a moral sense. Uh, note, however, that it's not necessarily legally possible. In order to get a change of purposes, as we were saying before, you have to get, go to the Charity Commission and ask for a change of purposes. So if you're an organisation, I don't know, for the relief of poverty, and then you want to address opiate addiction, that might not be within your constitution. You might have to go to the Charity Commission and ask for a change of purposes. One thing that's very important is, is you actually hear quite often in the news, uh, people say that organisations should just give the money back. Uh, but you have to stop and think about that impulse. Uh, first of all, that is not legally possible. You cannot take money out of a charitable fund and put it into private hands. So in the Sacklers example, the, the idea of a charity just taking money out of its coffers and giving it to the Sacklers personally, that's legally uh, impossible. Yeah. And, and as you say, I mean, actually, uh, who whose interests does that serve either because it's kind of is it for the for the the moral benefit of the charity or for the people making the demand of the charity and actually if what happens is the the sacklers or other people who are perceived to be the problem end up with more money back in their pockets <laughs> that that seems like a perverse consequence in any case even if le you know even if it wasn't for the, for the fact that it's legally uh impossible um so yeah i mean it's it's an extraordinarily complex area and i think you're right the fact that this story keeps coming up time and time again and actually when you look back at the history it has come up many many times in the past suggests that uh it's not going away but but the frequency of the stories does seem to be increasing somewhat um maybe we could just um move on slightly to to something else that um i think is really interesting although probably there's kind of fewer examples of it happening in practice but but uh, i wanted to throw it in because it, it came up um uh, over the course of last year due to a suggestion uh, that don't think ended up being in the Labour Party uh, manifesto in the UK but was sort of seriously under consideration around this issue of independent schools or sort of private schools here in the UK that have charitable status and lots of people have concerns about this and, and sort of question whether that should still be the case and the suggestion was put forward that actually if the Labour Party were to come into power which they they didn't in the end but that they might seek to renationalize or nationalize in in some way those charitable uh, assets and this this seems to me like another a, a different scenario that also addresses that question of kind of taking money back once it's past the charitable threshold what i mean what would the law have to say about something like that i mean is it is it even feasible to have a sort of mass program of of the government taking over assets that were endowed for charity well when the Labour Party conference voted for this. It, it set Twitter alight, didn't it? it Everyone did, was yeah. very interested. <laughs> they were um, the, the the proposal was to uh, nationalise educational assets uh, held by independent schools, um, and there's no reason in charity law why the legislature. Uh, cannot do that. Um, of course, uh, in the UK, Parliament's sovereign. It can do whatever it likes, as long as it's passed clearly by law. 
what's complicated isn't charity law. It's not uh, uh, English and, and Welsh law. It's uh, international law as it affects our jurisdiction. Uh, and so the particular proposal to nationalise educational assets, there might be human rights issues. Uh, for example, religious organisations, can they really have their assets nationalised? Uh, and also competition law issues from the European Union. Uh, can the state really take over what is a, a sort of devolved provision and centralise it all as a, a state provision? So it's actually international law and national regulation which is complicated here not charity law charity law is fine uh, and i remember talking to you about this actually we have an example with the establishment of the nhs of course before these international obligations uh, were taken so seriously in english law of uh, nationalizing charitable assets yeah absolutely and i i don't pretend to be a particular expert on it but certainly from from my understanding in the process of the establishment of the of the nhs many of the previously endowed voluntary hospitals did have their their assets nationalized and a small number of teaching hospitals were allowed to to keep those endowments and you know many of those sort of well-known institutions today but so there is a a precedent although as you say i'm sure from a legal point of view a lot has happened since the establishment of the nhs so uh, i'm not sure it would be quite so straightforward um these days and as i say the actual proposal around uh independent school assets uh, as you say, it created quite a, quite a storm at the time, but actually it doesn't look like there's any danger of it happening anytime soon. But I think that issue will will again not go away because people do tend to get quite exercised about the uh, charitable status of independent schools. So I think that's right. Yes. So so although that specific proposal won't come through, it's certainly the case that independent schools are back under the microscope, and they actually have been. Um, for a long period. But that 2006 Act that we started off the podcast talking about the reform of public benefit, that was directed towards public schools, uh, putting um, public school issue to bed. It really hasn't. It's been rumbling on and on and on and on, and it's not going to go away. Absolutely. Um, I'm aware we're in danger of uh, running long uh, here, John. So I just wanted to ask you a few kind of broader questions that I like to do when I have people uh, on who are sort of academics in the world of, of charity and philanthropy. Just sort of more broadly about your take on those, those links and that relationship and kind of how you, your experience of how, you know, you've found or what you think about the way in which academia could inform practice better in the world of, of charity and philanthropy and also kind of how useful academics find it to draw on the experience of of practitioners? Well, it's, it's a great question. I think there are some things that academics can do. Uh, one, of course, is, is teach. Uh, so at Liverpool, we have a charity law course. That's quite new. We've had it for three years. Uh, it's got about 30 to 50 students on it each year. And we sort of teach those, obviously, charity law, and then they will go out into the world with an interest in charity law, perhaps an interest in joining the sector uh, with, with uh, legal expertise in some way. So that's something really new and something really positive that we can do. And of course, all academics uh, can do. And the second thing that academics can do um, is sort of just get out there in the world and um, give talks and the such like. Um, insofar as people want to hear academics talking talking about their research, and so I I actually um, 
I've, I, I, I volunteer. I'm a trustee at the Brain Charity uh, in Liverpool. Great organisation. Uh, but one of the things I've been doing with them is working on their objects. So that's partly volunteering, but it's partly legal expertise. So academics can do that and sort of share knowledge on, on, on a, a practical level. There is also a movement which, which you might know of uh, called Pracademics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I, I even self-defined as one at a conference I went to recently. So, <laughs> so excellent. So, so um, there's this movement as well, where, where there's actually a quite clear overlap between academia and the practical world. I'd say you're actually you're precisely on that overlap yourself, Roger. Would you say? I, I, I certainly aim to be, John. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so that's something, that, and that's I think that's that's a movement. Now, that's that's not. As, as you look at it, that's not my sort of research because um, the academic streams at conferences and the such like tend to uh, have data and have uh, actual research that can be used by the sector. And that, of course, is really, really uh, important and valuable work, but it's not where my uh, personal uh, skill set is. No, absolutely. But I think even then, sort of, you know, I found the knowledge of the history around charity and you know specific expertise around things like around the the law people in the sector are very interested in this stuff when when it kind of comes up and is relevant to specific um you know things that that happen in their uh, day-to-day work or issues that come to the forefront I mean all the sorts of things we've been talking about about the uh, kind of nationalization of independent school assets or tainted donations like these are all stories that people in the world of charity and philanthropy are well aware of. And actually for, to have academics uh, be able to come to the table and offer a kind of, you know, more perspective on them and sort of more, you know, uh, informed background on, on the complexities of some of the issues. I think people really appreciate that. So it's just sort of making sure that there are, there are those linkages so that as and when it can relate to people's day job, um, they can kind of draw on some of that, that expertise. That's right. There's been a, a shift actually over the last um, decade or so in academia towards being more accessible and, and getting information uh, out there, getting uh, knowledge out there. Uh, and I'm all in favour of that, as long as there's also space in academia uh, for a bit of uh, navel gazing, because I'm also all about that, Rodri. <laughs> Well, given that that's the thing that I most uh, envy yeah. people, I would defend that to the hilt anyway, John, absolutely. Um, no, and, and obviously I'll continue on a sort of one-man mission to interview every single philanthropy <laughs> academic that I can find in the world and try and popularise their work as well. Um, but yeah, on that note, um, it just remains to say um, thanks ever so much for, for coming on the podcast. It's I know we've had some problems actually managing to get around to, to arrange this, so it's well, great it's to... Like fifth, fifth time lucky or, or something. I, I think so, excellent. yeah. We got there eventually. So that's the main thing, assuming that I don't manage to delete this recording while I'm (laughs) editing it anyway. Um, But yeah, certainly. I mean, are there any things that you're kind of working on at the moment that you want to flag up to people or, um, you know, stuff that you'd like to point them towards that you you just like people to to be aware of? So something I've been writing just recently is is actually on uh, gifts to organisations that have closed down. So wait for that. That's going to come out. Um, some sometime next year, uh, and I'm basically arguing that the law is 
uncertain there and needs sorting out because you can see how easy it would be to sort out if you've got um, a situation that's repeating over and over again and has done for centuries you've got gifts going to organizations that have closed down all that needs to happen really is for the legislature to decide what should happen in each case and of course uh, being uh, charity people i think the best view is that the money should just go to a related charity and the next of kin should be excluded in every case it's it, that's an easy fix it just needs parliament to take it seriously and, and legislate okay well interesting yeah i'll watch that watch that space um certainly yeah i'll uh, uh flag that up to people and kind of keep them abreast when it when it comes out um great well thanks ever so much for for coming on the show and uh as as ever with these things um you know perhaps further down the line i can twist your arm and we can uh you can come back on and i'm sure that i'm sure there'll be loads more tainted donation stories <laughs> down the line that we can talk about yeah. so great to talk to you thank you cheers Okay, great. So we're back. Um, And my thanks again to John for coming on the podcast. Uh, As you heard there, it took us a number of sort of uh, attempts to manage to do it, including a couple of false starts. I'm very grateful to him for sticking with me. Um, If you I'll put links in the show notes to various of the things we mentioned throughout the podcast uh, and some of the things that uh, John has done and where you can find work by him. Uh, If you're interested more broadly in the kinds of things we were talking about, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore uh, underscore H underscore Davis um, or alternatively at Philiteracy, where you can find more stuff on kind of history of philanthropy and various interesting academic bits and pieces about philanthropy. Um, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org if you've got ideas for people I could interview or things I could talk about on the podcast Uh, other than that just like, subscribe tell all of your friends about it leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts and I'll see you next time okay, bye (laughs) bye